everybody welcome to another episode of podcast on d shot and um obviously with last year i did three of these with one with keith bryan one with laura schischel um two of the biggest uh scholars on john philip souza i had jason fettig on last year um director of the marine band now i got one of the other um more um notable recent souza scholars and a fellow wisconsinite i got i gotta add that in there uh, Dr. Patrick Warfield from the University of Maryland. Um, Patrick, uh, thanks for joining me. My absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. All right. So I gotta I gotta start with the Wisconsin thing. So first off, obviously you you're originally from Platteville. Obviously, I don't want to talk about Whitewater. I'm I'm a Whitewater alum. But I don't want to talk about <laughs> Platteville beating Whitewater last week. We'll, um, we'll, we'll keep that between ourselves. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, 
obviously you're the fourth person that I've had on that has had a connection to Lawrence University. So first off, kind of um, what when did you graduate from Lawrence and then how did that kind of um, how did kind of your time in Platteville and Lawrence University kind of lead you to kind of your exploits with um, the career of John Fultzudo? Oh, wow. That's quite an interesting question. Uh, yeah, so you're right. I grew up in Platteville, Wisconsin. Um, I would say, you know, one of the things that was really special about Platteville at the time was it was home for the Wisconsin Shakespeare Festival, which I don't think is in existence any longer, but that sort of pulled me into the arts and I became interested in arts of all sorts and, and into music. And then, yeah, I went off to, uh, to Lawrence University, uh, was there 1990 to 1994. Um, and okay, so you would have, you would have been, um, so Craig Gall is the director yeah. of the Kenosha Pops. So you yeah. would have been just right after he graduated. So I, that would probably explain why he doesn't maybe have a recollection of who, who you, you, who you are. Yeah. Yeah. I would have been right behind him, but I was aware of him. <laughs> he was okay. the, the big boys, so to speak. Yeah. Okay. So at Lawrence, there was this really amazing um, wind band conductor named Robert Levy. He was also the professor of trumpet and Bob, as he goes by, or Doc, we called him, um, really loved unusual music, contemporary music in particular. He was not particularly a, a, a Sousa guy, I would say, but he was really interested in um, cutting edge wind ensemble music, which has got me really interested in cutting edge wind ensemble music. And I went off to graduate school at Indiana University knowing I wanted to do something with wind bands, right? Bob had instilled this love of what wind bands can be and the community they can form and the music they play. And I, for a long time as a scholar, have been interested in origin stories, beginnings of things. And so I thought, oh, here I am really interested in like late 20th century wind band music. I should think about the origins of wind bands. And I thought, well, that must be John Philip Sousa, which is about the stupidest thing one can think. I, that's, you know, Sousa is not the beginning of wind bands by any stretch of the imagination, but that's sort of how the Lawrence connection got to my, my Sousa uh, scholarship. Okay, so was that kind of when you were first interested in Sousa? For me, it's kind of interesting because um, my kind of introduction to Sousa was um, my dad played in the community band in Racine, led by a guy named who's recently passed away, a guy named Del Eich, who was a big part of um, mm. one of the former presidents of, I think, the American band, band Directors Association at one point. But Del would always close with the Racine concert band with Stars and Stripes. Henceforth, that became like the only Sousa thing that I liked when I was little up until maybe 2000 when I said to one of the commercial pops directors that um, I liked Sousa's music and I felt like I had to stick with that um, after I said it, but it opened so many doors. So just kind of, when kind of was your first exposure to Sousa? Obviously, did, I would guess that you played Sousa. Like what instrument did you play and did you play in band? And then like I, what other music did, what music of Sousa were you kind of exposed to like early? Sure. Yeah. So yeah, I played in band. I was a clarinetist. Um, I chose the clarinet. That's kind of a funny story. I chose the clarinet in whatever grade we chose wind instruments. That must've been like fifth or sixth grade. And I thought, you know, if I play the clarinet, I'll get to sit next to the pretty girls in band. <laughs> so that I think that's that I think a lot of, lot of guys probably think that sometimes even these days. The the irony of it is I ended up marrying a trombonist. So I should have 
should have stuck to my gender stereotypical instruments, I suppose. I don't know. Um, but yeah, I played the clarinet. My undergraduate degree is in clarinet and music education from Lawrence. But I did play in the community band. Uh, the University of Wisconsin Platteville also had a band that I was in high school allowed to play in. And, you know, in all honesty, when I was a kid, I didn't think that much about Sousa. I, but what I did think about was the communities that bands help form. Like bands are different than orchestras in that way. Orchestras tend to be like really driven toward the concert, whereas bands are much more about coming together and fellowship and fun and you make music together and you make friends in the, in the ensemble. And that sort of social construction is a big part of what Sousa would do later in his career, right? So much of what Sousa did is about pulling audiences together. And so I've been interested in that power music has and bands do it better than almost anything else. Choirs do it as well. Okay. Um, I, I, I have to mention that obviously I brought up Craig before. Um, he he directs the Kenosha band. Um, and I see the Kenosha Pops band and the Racine Concert band have both both just recently celebrated their centennials this year. Wow. Um, the Kenosha Pops was formed as an American Legion band in 1922. And then I think the Racine band became the first, they had like four other community, four other bands in Racine prior to that, but then they became the official band in 1923. So they both kind of, um, so my my hometown, we've, we've had a pretty, pretty good band um, for years. And obviously the neighboring community band is, been pretty good so i obviously i'm gonna quick kind of ask about kind of what's your kind of role at maryland and like what do you kind of teach there sure so i have a, a very weird role i'm a professor of musicology most uh universities and their schools of music will have kind of the american musicologist and i was that person for a long time you know got hired to teach american musical culture we now have two of us which is fantastic um I've taught everything from just kind of surveys of American music. I also teach the, uh, often the history of, of popular music. I've done classes on the blues, classes on musical theater. Uh, I've done hip hop classes. So lots of various kinds of things. But um, I entered administration a few years ago and I now am very lucky to serve as the associate dean for the arts and programming in the College of Arts and Humanities. So I get to work with all the artists on campus and the University of Maryland has a brand new, uh, about a year old now, arts initiative. And I'm the director of that arts initiative, which is called Arts for All. And I'm happy to talk more about that if you like. Okay. Um, <laughs> go ahead then. Sure. You want the, the quick 10 set tour of Arts for All? Sure. It has, sure. So it has three core pillars, the first of which is to ensure that every student on our campus has a meaningful creative experience. We're a very science, technology, engineering, mathematics school but the president of our university recognizes that creativity is a big part of what allows us to operate in the world. And we wanna make certain that every student connects to creativity, whether that's through bands, other kinds of music, theater, dance, creative writing, studio art, any of the, the creative spaces. Our second big pillar is we know that universities are super siloed, right? You get departments and students don't always move around those departments. So part of what Arts for All seeks to do is connect departments to one another. So how can we build majors, for example, between uh, visual art and computer science, dancing and engineering, so that students are learning in more than one space and their brains start to think of, be able to think about the world in more than one space. And then our third pillar, and this is the one that's important for bands in some ways, I really believe, and I think you probably do too, that music has this incredible power to change the world and that the arts have incredible power to change the world. Classic example of this is that the science has got us a vaccine real quick but they didn't help us build the communities 
for people to take those vaccines or wear the masks. And I know I'm going to get a little political here, but these are really important things, right? And the arts can help build those communities so that people can trust one another and trust people who maybe vote differently than they do. But we're in this together. And that artistic role towards social justice, an artistic role towards addressing the big challenges that are facing humanity, we can't leave all that to the sciences. Okay. Um, I'm going to go back to the Lawrence thing. Did you ever get to know Fred Sturm at Lawrence? Or? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, okay. Fred Sturm was director of jazz studies. He, uh, he was one of the reasons I went to Lawrence. I got to um, play in his jazz band when I was auditioning at Lawrence. And then he left for the Eastman School of Music almost immediately after I arrived. And then he came back again. So mm. I, have a, I had a connection to Fred, but I, uh, I was there during part of the time he was gone, which was okay. unfortunate for me. Um, I guess one of the other connections I'd throw out there, I don't know if you would, I don't know if you know, do you know Ken Wheelie at all or? That Doesn't would be ring a bell. Okay, because he was, he was my high school band director um, and he went to Lawrence and there's a story of the, uh, what's the, the, the Louis statue, I guess, Ooh. that went back and forth between Fred Sturm and uh, Ken Wheelie at some point. Okay.
All right. Um, before we kind of talk about the book, um, I usually kind of try to ask about favorite pop culture references to Sousa. Um, what are some of the ones that kind of stick out to you? I got it. I do got a random one that is um, somewhat shocking from a recent movie um, that kind of shocked Jason a little bit. Um, and then I got one thing of Sousa that I would say references something that, um, from the, maybe the 90s in terms of video games that I, that I think yeah. something by Sousa kind of reminds me of. So well, the, the one, do you want mine first or you want to show me yours? You, you can go. The, the thing I often go back to, and this is not that recent, but there was a movie called, I think it was called Pleasantville. Okay. And it was, a, it was about, it was like, I, I forget the details, but it was something like a, a black and white world where people were living and it was all perfect and pristine Norman Rockwell-like space and then it's sort of like a um footloose footless or something where some outside energy comes into the community and it becomes a modern space but there's this one moment in the black and white world where they're having a town meeting and one they're going through the things that they'll allow in this town and one of them is the marches of john philip souza because you know that's the most pure wholesome you know, and they're not 1950s, of course, but our imaginary world of an American past where we all got along beautifully was John Phillips' success. Okay. Um, I would say there's ones like obviously Liberty Bell being the theme to Monty Python. I, mm -hmm. I referenced um, The Waterboy, the Adam Sandler movie where um, King Cotton is being played during the middle of uh -huh. um, uh, Bobby Boucher's conversation with Coach Klein as Coach Klein's trying to get his manhood back um but the weird one is obviously not so we got to hit on the movie too but i'm going to ask about the movie when we talk about your book um is there something that kind of hit me when i was reading your book that kind of references the movie um but kind of um the weird one is it's a cap it's the uh it's one of the marvel movies there's captain america the first avenger and it is the most interesting thing where i've seen them it's there's two susan marches in the movie one is the washington post and right before that if you watch the movie there was a patriotic se section of this this movie where of all things saber and spurs oh wow <laughs> is in the movie and i'm watching the movie i'm like wait a second that's saber and spurs and i'm like there's no no one's gonna realize that the susan march because it's not one of the one the, gen the general public knows that Sousa wrote and it, so that one kind of caught, caught me off guard so I, um I guess what do you think about that one that is that is pretty bizarre that somebody dug that deep into the catalog to come up with a, a Sousa march you know there's another one that comes to mind I was in I was actually in Japan a while back and went to a museum that had this sort of American theme to it and they had uh it was all in Japanese but they had translations up and at one point march music begins to play and they, they put up march by john philip Sousa because it it uh perfectly encapsulates a thought about america it was not a march by john philip Sousa. okay <laughs> no idea what it was but then it was like oh Sousa, that'll be a good enough label for american music you you talk about that it's interesting so um in kenosha with one of the summer bands they usually go to um for the I think it's the high school summer band band of the black watch they go to disney every year and um there's a section of disney and i remember being on this trip 
And all of a sudden, I hear Comrades of the Legion in the Magic Kingdom in this patriotic part. And I'm like, that's a Sousa march, but I got to think about which one this is. Right. And then I sat in the park for for a little bit by myself and listened to all these marches. And some of them were Sousa. Some of them might have been National Emblem or Chimes of Liberty. And they were all just playing on a loop in this park. Right. Um, so that was cool. My other random thought i don't know if you get any like thoughts about like listening to something by Sousa that you randomly connect to other things and in, in other music in our in our society but when i listen to a world war one song um that Sousa wrote that's very short i i think of the pokemon video games oh why do you think of pokemon i so the song is pushing on uh-huh it's sounds like the town music from either um pokemon yellow red or blue if if people know go back that far it just sounds like it sounds like that's kind of the weird weird one so that that is a bizarre one i wouldn't i wouldn't have caught that probably
Um, let's kind of talk about the book a little bit. Um, what kind of, um, I see you're talking about origin stories before. So how much kind of, of the origin story of researching um, Sousa's early career in terms of his origin story, how much did that kind of motivate you to kind of write, write the uh, making, making the March King book? Right, that, that was exactly the motivation, right? So where does this person come from? Sousa's in many ways, the great icon of American culture, the thing we, the sound, right? We think of when we think of Americana. So how did that begin? And I was really interested, not just in Sousa, but in the sort of cultural world that he operated as a young man. And that's what a big chunk of that book is about. Um, what were kind of some of the surprises? Um, my my one question I want to throw to you is when you were writing the part on the Milton Nobles in the Matt Morgan part, did were, mm -hmm. did you ever think about the the bio, the bio, the biographic movie on Sousa in terms of um, that particular part when it talks about kind of the um, person in the Matt Morgan? Is it Living Pictures? Living Pictures, yep. Um, where somebody. So if you, if I, I bet you've seen the movie. Yeah. Okay. So in the movie, there's a fictionalized character played by the young Robert Wagner that takes Sousa to a concert and it's supposedly music by John Philip Sousa, but it's the Matt Morgan living pictures thing. And in the movie, um, this is probably during Sousa's Marine Band days, but I guess the performer rips her tights. Um, so did you ever kind of think about kind of that moment in the movie when you were writing that or researching and writing uh, that part of the book? And probably not. I have to admit, I, I've only watched the movie once and I okay. don't have a, a great recollection of every detail of it. I think what was interesting about that is Susa did the music for a couple of these touring shows in the 1870s, a very young man. And we didn't have the music for very much of it. But it turned out that in near Baltimore, Maryland was a family, the descendants of some of these original theater uh, managers. And they actually had Sousa's manuscript material for some of those shows. Those are, that's a little bit of the Sousa manuscript material that's still in private hands. There's not very much. Okay. So that would be the Phoenix? Uh, yes, I think it was the Phoenix. Okay. Number so that would be, yeah, so that would be why we don't have the Phoenix March. Okay. I don't think they have the entirety of the march. They've got some of the other incidental music to the show. Okay. Um, one of the other things that kind of um, stuck out to me in terms of the book was um, just how far we've come in terms of like how, how much of Sousa's teaching for in terms of music kind of came from other places because it seemed like um, in the schooling side of things, there wasn't much in terms of the like, I guess choir was being one of the major things, but it just shows kind of a lot of his stuff came from John Espuda and obviously being the whole, oh, trying to run off to the circus and then becoming <laughs> a Marine band mu apprentice musician and all all the things that kind of came with him being an apprentice in the, the Marine band. It's interesting to kind of read that part and kind of think about kind of how far we've come in terms of every school kind of has or most communities now have obviously school bands and school orchestras not not to the level of Kenosha where obviously you have <laughs> a band I don't know if you've seen what Kenosha does every year they have um they do it for each three but um like Bandarama for instance it's 1800 kids in the gymnasium floor 
they bring right. in a guest conductor every year. I don't know if you've seen videos of that on YouTube. Um, but uh, just that was kind of one of the things that I thought about is how far we've come. And then what, when did it be interesting to kind of know, like, when did we get to that kind of the point where bands and orchestras became a regular thing in, in schooling? Yeah, it's really an early 20th century phenomenon. You can see that developing kind of the World War One, World War II period. Um, and part of what happens, of course, is that the touring bands begin to shut down. And a lot of the players in those bands become high school music teachers and college music teachers. And so the band programs in secondary and collegiate education just explode. But to, one, one of the things I might challenge you on is, is it really a matter of how far we've come? It's a, it's a change rather mm-hmm. than an evol- evolution, I might say. Because think about Sousa's schooling, right? He he joins the Marine Band as an apprentice when he's, what, 13 years old? Yep. And so for years, as a young man, he is day in and day out working with professional musicians, his father included. So that schooling, while it was an apprenticeship, would have been an intense period of training for precisely the job he would later hold as director of the Marine Band. It's pretty pretty incredible. I, I thought it was interesting to um kind of see like what other like obviously john is it was impressive to kind of see like the john espuda thing and what else john espuda kind of accomplished in his career um another thing was kind of oh go ahead can i I talk about that just a little bit i think this is actually really important too one of the things that's happened as we've institutionalized music education is we've siloed it a little bit so people today train to be a violinist or a composer or a music theorist or a music educator, right? We're very separated. But John Asputa, who is one of Sousa's you know, childhood teachers, I'm not gonna get everything. He was a performer, he was in the Marine Band. He served an apprenticeship as a Marine Band member and then became a Marine Band member. He was a teacher, he ran Asputa's music school. He was a composer, he wrote music for his students. So there's a, um, a textbook basically by John Asputa. He was a publisher, so he published his own stuff. He ran a music store, right? He did everything, soup to nuts that was required to have a life as a musician. And very, very few, even college trained musicians today have that kind of breadth in the musical marketplace. It was kind of interesting. Was he the one that led the the colored opera company thing yeah, in the so, book? Okay. So John Asputa led the choir at St. Augustine's Church, which is the oldest African-American Catholic church in Washington, DC. And while he was director, Asputa was white or something like white of course that's a we'll go into critical race theory if we need to white is a construction black is a construction but we'll you can talk about that if you like the um he was a white musician working in a black catholic church and those black choir members were so good that washington's elite would come to the church to hear the choir sing and people get confused about this they weren't singing spirituals they were singing catholic church music and they're singing mozart and haydn and so asputa thought oh we can take this choir on tour and he creates an opera company called the colored american opera company now it doesn't last very long it really just does one excursion but it helps to raise money for the church and a new building um one of the things kind of from the book that it it backtracked to i don't remember what book it was when i was younger i don't know if it was the random um children's book that children books music series that introduces little kids to composers uh-huh. Um, but there was one book, or I don't know if it's multiple books, but it was getting reacquainted to the the whole romance that Sousa had with um the Emma Swallow girl 
where he, he where it didn't didn't happen but obviously he was trying to appease the, the father that he was worth um his daughter pursuing um that was kind of something i was like oh i forgot about that right <laughs> yeah that's a beautiful young love story that and susan tells that story in his autobiography um and you you mentioned the running away to the circus thing as well there's this famous story he tells about thinking he was going to run away to the circus and his father gets wind of it and signs him up i forget was it a baker's apprentice or something like that um but one of the things I was trying to do in my book is take all of Sousa's stories and go, which ones can we actually confirm? And I looked everywhere for any indication of the local newspapers that there was a circus in town at about the time Sousa would have been the right age. I couldn't find any. Now, that doesn't mean he's not telling us the truth. He, there may have been. But there's a lot of times in Sousa's writing where you kind of go, is he telling us the truth or is he painting a picture that he wants? And part of what I do in that, that book is try to document the things that we can actually say we know this is true. Okay. Um, some of the other things kind of, um, I was like, obviously Sousa trying to, um, when it came to like, obviously fighting for them, like, you knew that when he became director of the Green Band that he tried to improve the repertoire, but just that how much he fought for, um, the equal pay with his musicians in the Green Band, that was kind of interesting to read about, um, Another thing was kind of hearing the name Charles A. Zimmerman, yeah. In terms of the Marine, who who was one of the people that was going to um could could have been in the consideration to secede Souza with the Marine Band. Obviously, you wrote Anchors Away. Um, David W. Reese pops up within that sort of thing, yeah. and then obviously there's a little bit of a feud between him and Souza later. So that that was kind of that was interesting as well. Yeah, one of the most fun finds, I did a lot of the work for this book at the National Archives and Records Administration in downtown DC. Uh, this is the building on the mall. You can go in the front and, and uh, see the Constitution and Declaration of Independence. But in the back, researchers can go in and there are just unbelievable boxes of material back there. And I had them pull a couple of boxes that were from about the time Sousa left the Marine Band. They file I was looking for was actually misfiled so it took a while to find it but there they were all of the applications of everyone who applied to become director of the marine band and it was some pretty big name musicians like the ones you've just mentioned that Sousa had elevated the quality of the band so much over the what 12 years he was director that some pretty massive musicians were interested in taking over um I guess any when you were doing the research for that book like what what most surprised you what most surprised me Okay, here's one. I don't know if this is the most surprising, but it was really interesting. The story about, you'll often hear people talk about the story of Sousa joining the Marines at 13. And people will use that as a sort of, oh, he must have been a musical prodigy, right? It's a big deal that you're joining the Marine band at 13. Well, you can again find it in the National Archives, the papers of the apprentice program that the Marine Corps was running. They needed drummers and fifers to go out to all the Navy ships, all the shore stations. They had to produce large numbers of drummers and fifers. So they ran an apprentice program to produce those musicians. And we have the apprentice papers of hundreds of young men who signed up for that apprentice program. So it's not like Susan was particularly unusual in doing this. And that I think it was those kinds of discoveries that were so interesting in this process of seeing, oh, he's doing something that seems surprising, but it's in fact what musicians at that time would have done right 
serving an apprenticeship to learn the trade of your father was what young men did in the 1880s, 1870s, 1880s. That's perfectly normal. There's no surprise they did it. Okay. Um, trying to think of what else we can. Um, I know, I know I've learned a ton about kind of like foreshadowing and some of the other stuff in terms of Susan Marches and paint, like, like I see your book and Keith Bryan and Loris mm -hmm. and the stuff that they kind of talk about now kind of introduces me more to that as opposed to when I was, when I was in, even when I was in high school, listening to, um, Susan's stuff, maybe that wasn't something I paid attention to as much but now it's like something that kind of opens up another door so I don't uh, did you kind of over the years kind of learn more about kind of the performance practice of Sousa and, oh for sure um all those things I wish I had a good metaphor for this I'm going to rely on the the lame one that each march is like a snowflake but it's sort of like that right it's um a lot of musicians think you know Gustav Mahler is a really great composer because his pieces are really long right and so something little like a march it can't be very serious but when you really dig into these susan marches they are like little crystals almost they're so beautifully constructed uh, the way he builds a long shape over the course of manhattan beach for example or the way he displaces you rhythmically right at the beginning of washington post or the way um stars and stripes forever becomes this sort of layered excitement over the course of a piece and then recognize that a lot of those marches stars and stripes is a great example actually doesn't work very well as a parade march right if you didn't hear it from beginning to the end because the band was walking by you it wouldn't really work you know it's a piece for sitting and listening to and paying attention to and a lot of susan marches are that and also pieces to dance to right so washington post is a very complex piece about rhythmically but it's also a piece you want to get up and move around to and people in fact did and then when you layer the performance practice on top of it and realize that what you're looking at on the page the printed page is what half of what's actually involved in playing this piece because susan's waving the brass out for the first uh, first time through a strain or he's lowering the clarinets by an octave or what the percussion section is doing is almost you know it's almost lost to time all we have are descriptions of it and a handful of recordings but you know that much more is happening there than what's what's written in that snare drum part. Okay. Um, before we kind of talk about favorite Sousa stuff, um, I thought <laughs> I'd also kind of bring up um, how important was kind of him kind of trying to, obviously there was this in the Marine Band, and obviously with Sousa, with Sousa's band, in terms of getting quality music, musicians in his groups. Sorry, you mean recruiting the musicians to his group? Yeah, yeah. Yeah um central right we know that he goes to europe just as he's forming his own band largely to sort of look at how those bands in europe are structured and also to look for musicians he starts pulling musicians very carefully uh there's a lot of debate between the Sousa camp and the patrick gilmore camp about who actually stole the musicians or if it was okay right there's a lot of questions there but he was certainly involved in handpicking players for his ensembles at least at the beginning you know, by later, by the you know teens and twenties, it's operating as a machine, and he probably didn't need to be quite as hands on. But that's not my area of expertise either. No, I thought as um, obviously with me being a journalist now, um, <laughs> I thought it was really cool to kind of hear David Blakely had some sort of journalism background. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, David Blakely was a 
he's almost a P.T. Barnum-like character, right? He really knows how to play the public and convince people, this is the band you need to hear. He even, remember, calls the Sousa band the new Marine band. So he just pull right out of what the, the, the thing, the fame that Sousa had already acquired. All right. It was definitely a good good book to read. I think it's a good compliment to Paul Byerly's um, encyclopedic, uh, incredible band of John Philip Sousa book. I don't know if you get that as much from people. No, yeah. that's a big book. Paul, Paul was amazing at finding the details. Paul, I don't know if your listeners know this, but at the Marine Band Library today, there are 80 some, 82, I think, press books. Sousa had a press clipping agency that literally just looked for his name in newspapers all over the country. And those are pasted into press books, big volumes, thousands and thousands and thousands of newspaper articles. And Paul literally sat there and went through every single one. And he, he wrote down all the players, all the performances, all the repertoire. So he really catalogs Sousa's life. The, the work I've done, the work that Keith Bryan has done, the work that Loris has done, we couldn't do it without Paul's uh, groundbreaking work. Um, how much, obviously, with kind of your research on Sousa, have you gotten to know, obviously, Keith and Loris and Paul and people in the Marine Band? And obviously, um, they have a connection with the Marine Band. Obviously, you did the the you the video at Midwest with the Marine mm-hmm. Band, and you've done some other things with the Marine Band. Um, how cool is it to kind of have that connection with them? It's pretty cool. Uh, it's pretty amazing. So the uh, I've my current project is actually a very lengthy uh, ensemble history of the Marine Band. The Marine Band is the oldest continuously operating musical ensemble in the United States. So these instrumental ensembles been around since uh, it was founded in the very late 18th century. And their library there has been extraordinary. Their librarians are amazing. The players are very helpful to think about performance practice issues. Um, they're Jason Fedick and, and all of the, the leaders have been incredibly supportive of all of this work and couldn't do it without them. And you, I, your listeners may know that a few years ago, and I hope I get this right, uh, President Trump gave the Congressional Medal of the Arts to every military musician past and present. And so there is now actually a display in the Pentagon with that award. And I was very privileged to be able to write part of the uh, the text for that display about the history of bands in the Americas. Um, how much have um, like Keith Bryan and Loris and maybe even Paul Byerly been influential in terms of um, your research on Sousa? Oh, I can't even begin. So I've already... I've already said that Paul, uh, the work I've done would have been impossible if Paul hadn't published his work. He was the, the groundbreaking figure. Uh, Keith and Loris operate in a really important area that's not my area of expertise. They're both conductors. And so they both understand the music itself better than I do. Um, I'm really a cultural historian. So I don't, you'll notice in the book, I don't actually write all that much about the music. There are a few places where I think it's really important. But for me, it's much more how the music is used than what it sounds like.
All right, so let's get into um, like we'll start with the marches. And obviously, it was interesting in terms of the book to find out about um, that some of the marches were published after or for band after kind of they were written a little bit. So that was kind of a little bit of another tidbit. Um, I did this with Jason last year, and I did this. I tried to do this with Keith and Loris, but um, with Keith and Loris, it kind of um, didn't get the re the reaction that I. I mean, obviously, they're kind of guys that kind of don't have a hundred percent. They don't say, "Hey, this one's clearly my favorite," or <laughs> uh, it kind of goes back and forth or whatever. So, um, I guess. I'm going to start kind of with mine and then we can kind of go to, to yours. I'm going okay. to do my honorable mentions list of Sousa marches. Um, the Kansas Wildcats, Daughters of Texas, mm -hmm. Pride of Pittsburgh, Pride of the Wolverines, Globe and Eagle, Sound Off, Corcoran Cadets, Prince Charming, Homeward Bound, the Federal, Golden Jubilee. That's the honorable. Uh Got to make sure I put one. I got that one in there. Um, 20 through 11 is the Legionnaires, the Black Horse Troop. I really like the Naval Reserve March. Yeah. Um, with Obviously with the uh, Blue Ridge, I'm coming back to you being in, in that march. The Chanty Man's March, the White Rose, La Flor de Sevilla, um, Atlantic City Pageant, Invincible Eagle, Wisconsin Ford Forever, Number 11 is the Ferris of the Ferris. So before I get to my top 10, um, is there any surprises out of that? Because I know that Jason gets surprised that I put, uh, oh, I've one of the other honorable mentions is Pet of the Petticoats in On Parade. Pet of the Petticoats, wow. All right. I, well, I'm going to ask about sound off. Why do you put sound off in there? Um, some of it I kind of get stuck when, like, I get in, like, I, I listen to, like, what else is happening in the Susan March. So you end up liking, kind of what what's the baritone counter melody or what's the okay um that sort of stuff kind of is present in some of these decisions and then what's the dog fat fight like because i think the the dog fight and sound off is a little bit energetic that dun, 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 if i'm correct does that sound okay. off that sounds right uh, <laughs> good <Yeah>. question <laughs> i think that yeah yeah, I think that's sound off. I, I, I say to people, I can guess these marches off the intros sometimes. So, so I think if I handed somebody my phone, which has all the recorded Susan marches on it, and if somebody said, if I said, play, play, play any random Susan march, I can probably most likely guess all of them off the intros. Wow. Um, but all right. So to my top 10. Obviously, I said I'm a journalist. Um, I'm a sports reporter for two newspapers in the actually in the Appleton area. I cover Kimberly Kakana, a little shoot in Wrightstown. Um, so I have my number 10 pick is the Washington Post. Um, number nine is the University of Illinois, actually, March. Um, I have a good story about the University of Illinois. I went there when I was um, a kid with my parents and my brother. We went to the, we got wind of the Sousa archives from. Mm -hmm. um, Who's the woman that goes out and does like the female Sousa? Uh, oh, Patricia Backus. Patricia Backus. Yeah, did something with the Racine concert band, and she told us about um, the Sousa archives. So we went there, and um, this is a cool story because I somehow, I guess I impressed somebody at the Sousa archives at that time about how much I knew about John Philip Sousa, and she gave me this person 
at the University of Illinois Sousa Archives gave me a free copy of the Paul Byerly Works of John Philip Sousa book. Oh, nice. Not just that. She opened the, if you, I'm, I'm guessing you've been to the, the archives yeah. there. There's these file cabinets and file cabinets of Sousa, Sousa manuscripts. And she let me pick something to get photocopied from her, from, from there. And my regret, my biggest regret about this, I should have picked the complete score of Stars and Stripes. For some reason, I was starting trombone <laughs> the next fall, and I picked the trombone part of Hands Across the Sea. So somewhere, and I think my dad put it somewhere so it doesn't get destroyed, because it's a photocopy. It's the trombone part of Hands Across the Sea. So that, that's, a, that's a very specific thing to pick, but a pretty good one. Yeah. So number nine is the University of Illinois March. Number eight is the Gallant Seventh. Number seven is the Untitled March, because I love the trio of that march. Um, the next two are kind of based off of low brass stuff in terms of what the tubas are doing and maybe some of the baritones. Um, number six is the Glory of the Yankee Navy. Number five is the Diplomat. And four is where I put Stars and Stripes. Um, three is Pathfinder of Panama. Two is Nobles of the Mystic Shrine, even though I kind of contemplate um, switching it to number one. But right now, um, this might be a surprise. My number one right now would be the New Mexico March. Okay. No, why did you so, pick New Mexico? Why is, why is New Mexico at the top? Um, I just think like the Native American stuff in it and just uh -huh. kind of how it sounds sometimes. I think that's kind of one of the cool ones. So. So I guess I would say the ones that I really enjoy, I love most of the minor key ones, especially those that have a kind of, um, um, what's the word I want? Masonic connection or something like that. So and then Gladiator, Crusader, those that a bunch of the mid 1880s that are, I really like. Liberty Bell, I think is really a amazing march structurally and yeah, mostly structurally. But here's one that I don't think was on your list. Uh, Revival. Okay. That's the one where the song that he uses is actually has, I, if I'm, I read it in some hymnal book. Yeah. Has some, sort the, of has some sort of connection to Wisconsin, doesn't it? Oh, does it? I don't know. It might um, have to do with like a, I don't know if it was written by a pharmacist or something. I, I remember song, reading. I think, I think you might be right. I think the song might be. So it's based on the song Sweet By and By. Yep. Very, very famous revival kind of song. Um, and Suzo used that in two fantasies, if I'm correct, because there, yeah, there's one that I might include in this podcast from the Keith Bryan series that's the that I think is better than Sons of Grace and Sons of Glory. And that's that Sounds of the Revials. He uses it in that. And then there's yeah. another one that he... But what's incredible about the revival march is that he doesn't quote the whole song until near the end of the march. I think it's the trio that he quotes the whole song in, or maybe it's the last string. But then there's that's one of those DC marches. So you go back to the beginning and play it again. And when you go back to the beginning and play it, you can hear echoes of the song he quotes at the end at the beginning, which if you don't know the song is in the march, you don't hear the first time through. And so that's the repeat sounds in your brain different the second time, even though it's exactly the same music. Like that's very cool. Okay. Um, I guess Sousa compositions. Um, that aren't marches are there any that kind of stick out to you in terms of um, I like with pleasure dance hilarious that's kind of one of them that kind of jumps mm -hmm. out there's some of the stuff from the suites that's 
like balance Alton twin partners um of his operettas i i've listened to the freelance selections quite a bit lately so i kind of put that up there the final movement from three quotations is something uh-huh. i listen to all the time in darkest africa um to give the the the, the title that we published even though the, there's the t- there's a title that's in some of the SUSE programs that's probably not right <laughs> right um, um jazz america humoresque on look i humoresque on look look for the silver linings cool with the um the thing he does at the end so so i'm this will make a lot of my colleagues annoyed there's a poem a wonderful poem by john mccray called in flanders fields and it's a world war one poem canadian very important patriotic poem about world war one and charles ives set that in the most spectacular way. If you don't know the eyes setting in Flanders Fields, everybody should go listen to it. It's absolutely extraordinary. But Sousa also did a setting of it. And I like Ives better, but I love Sousa's because it's so delicate and so just honest. It doesn't have any pretension at all. And I think of all the Sousa pieces outside of Marshes, that may be the one I like the most. Okay. Um, I guess any other favorites that you have or... Anything from the sweets or? No, you know, I really, I like Sousa at his smallest scales. So I like the songs and the marches the most. Um, Polka, right? But I don't find him nearly as convincing as he starts to get longer and longer. Um, I, I just think the way he writes, it doesn't tend to last well. The operators are good because you get little songs. Mm. But I don't know if you've, I don't know if you've ever sat through an entire Sousa operetta. It can get a little... You kind of wish you were to Gilbert and Sullivan operetta. <laughs> no, I haven't, but I think if if the freelance is kind of an example, I really like the Goose Girl song. There's that yeah. uh the song that talks about Cleopatra and Romeo and Juliet. That's um what's it called? The girls who love the mystery of history. That's that's kind of yeah, really yeah. entertaining in that operetta. Al Capitan, it would be uh my one of the good songs from that is typical tuna Zanzibar. Yeah, yeah. It's a good one from that. So, okay. All right. Um, Dr. Warfield, thanks for joining me um, to talk Sousa um, and the audio podcast. This is probably going to end with uh, a Sousa march that has to do with sugared, that uh, some reporter said something about sugared, sugared cured hams um, in terms of the Bell of Chicago. So, that's going to end, end the audio <laughs> portion. So, um, Dr. Warfield, thanks for joining me. Um, and I guess go Badgers. All right. Thanks so much, Daniel. Great to speak with you.